0: So when we think of identities, the most important thing is if you belong to a group, you look to members of that group to figure out how to behave. You don't look to members of other groups. In fact, sometimes if you really don't like the other group, you might try to do the opposite of them. That.
1: That's Dr. Jay Van Babel, professor of psychology and neuroscience and the co-author of The Power of Us.
0: Our identities and the way we're filtering the world visually make it hard for us to have this notion of objective evidence. And objective evidence can help when it's really unambiguous But when it's ambiguous, that's when identities and the way we filter the world matter a great
1: deal. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dr. Jay Van Babel to discuss how our social identities impact our perception of reality, what conspiracy theorists have in common with moral rebels, and why individual intelligence is not a cure for social stupidity.
0: So it's really important to be able to understand when you see these red flags and understand why people are clinging to false beliefs and how hard it might be to bring them back out of it into reality if their identity and their sense of belonging and status is connected to it.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Jay Van Babel is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University and the director of the Social Identity Morality Lab. He's also the co-author of The Power of Us, harnessing our shared identities to improve performance, increase cooperation, and promote social harmony. I began our conversation by asking Jay what his goal was for writing this book.
0: I mean, our, our goal is to make people smarter about groups um, and also to give them the tools to make smarter groups. So, you know, a lot of people have intuitions about how to run groups, or you can like log into a website like LinkedIn and everybody's talking about all the things they've done. Um, It's hard for me to watch the conversation sometimes unfold because they don't really align at all with the science or they're really individual focused. So they're focused on like, what I can do to be more efficient. They're like life hack type of approaches. Um, What we focus on is really thinking about collectives. Um, And whether or not you're a CEO or you're just trying to like help manage your daughter's soccer team, we want to give people the tools to have those groups be more effective and successful.
1: And I know at the very beginning, you mentioned the quote where Aristotle says, like, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. But what, what does knowing yourself mean to you?
0: Yeah, so I think the way most people think about the self is almost like a hero or heroine going through a book like every you have these chapters of your life. And each big stage in your life is a different chapter. And it's all kind of with one arc or narrative, and you're the same person throughout it. What we want to argue, and what we think the science of social psychology supports, is that the self is way much more fluid and dynamic. And so we prefer a quote by Walt Whitman, which is We contain multitudes, which is to say that, you know, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm talking as an author, which is a new identity I have. And it brings to mind a set of assumptions about maybe what you'll ask me and how I will respond. When I tune out of this podcast, I run to my next meeting and I'm a professor. I have to introduce another scientist to give give a talk and I'll be analyzing his presentation and asking tough questions. When I go home, I'm a father. And so all of a sudden I forget completely about these other identities and I'm just thinking about what I'm going to get on the table for dinner for my kids. When I go back, I'm Canadian. So when I go back to on vacation to see my family, my parents, all of a sudden that shifts into another identity and another way of habits and thinking. And so what we want to communicate is that we all contain multiple identities, and we want to help people understand how these identities shape how you think about the world and behave and give them the tools so that they can be leaders on teams and activate the right types of identities, also that they can resist influence from people who are preying on their identities in subtle ways that they may not be aware of. And so it's basically giving people the toolbox to navigate the social world as it is.
1: And it's interesting when you discuss just how certain circumstances can basically change our readiness to connect with people. It almost these moments of solidarity. I think one of the examples you give is, uh, is on a plane, right? There's let's say there's over 100 of us. We don't know each other. Um, we're not a group until uh, turbulence happens or there's some emergency event. Uh, if you could speak to that.
0: Yeah. So when I take a plane ride, you know, for example, I'm going to a conference or to give a talk somewhere. I might talk very briefly to the person sitting next to me about what we do, but for the most part, everybody else on the plane is just a stranger. We're a bunch of individuals flying to the same destination with nothing else in common, it would seem. Um, We have this great story, which is also was an academic paper, of a plane that was hijacked in the 70s and taken to a desert, and everybody was held captive as hostages. And in that moment, when they were captured and taken hostage, The paper um, was written by a social worker who was uh, held hostage. And when she escaped at the end of this, she wrote a paper about how group dynamics unfolded on that plane. And what she said is first people kind of broke into subgroups. So some people had like more exclusive passports or multiple passports, and that gave you more power with the hostages because they were targeting certain groups. Other people formed subgroups around whether they had kids or what, what age they were, but eventually they all developed a sense of solidarity and common purpose all as hostages. And they were rationing food, supporting one another. And this is essentially how identity works, is that we often think of ourselves as individuals, but when situations place us in a context where we need to work together, we form a shared identity. And that can be at a small level, like you know a small team, or it can be at a high level, like an organization, or with your nation.
1: And on the note, I know you mentioned just a little bit earlier, I want to talk about how our identities shift, even in the day to day. And and, and when I was reading this, I thought about this one situation years and years ago where it seemed like this hit a crescendo. And it was when we had the grand opening of our first office and my parents were coming. My wife's parents were coming. The team was there and our clients would be there. And and I was thinking, okay, so which identity do I assume? Am I the son, son son-in-law, spouse or the CEO? And and yet all those people were all there in the same place. Uh, what, What is that?
0: Yeah, so that can cause conflict. I I remember this scene from Seinfeld. I think it was George when he talked about panic because his worlds were colliding. Um, And so the reason for that is we're used to having these different identities um, in our different spheres of our life. When we go to work, we have one identity and people treat us one way. We go home, it's different. When we go to see our parents we slip back into another identity like for me it's also a little bit slipping back into like a kid and my mom starts taking care of me it's weird right like i'm a grown man but we resume our old identities so her as a mom which she hasn't really you know it doesn't have in her day-to-day life anymore and me as her son and so those can be in conflict and so part of what makes us really effective as humans is the original working title for the book that i wanted to use was social chameleons because I think of humans, and that's one of our powers, is that we can operate and shift identities in different groups. And we often think, well, that's just you're being a hypocrite. But no, it's actually key to being successful is being adaptive and flexible enough to have different identities uh, as we go around the world so that we can fit in in different places. And people who are really good at that are often you know, really successful in lots of domains of life. They can be a great parent and a great, you know, CEO or manager at work. And those might be completely different skill sets and personalities that they adopt to be successful in those places.
1: I'm curious, like, where does the line get drawn between when this is okay and a good thing? So, for example, the way we are with our, our young daughters versus how we are in a leadership meeting versus people who, let's say, could kind of approach this from a manipulative standpoint in, in the sense that they are, let's say, public facing one way and then, um, you know, let's say very corrupt <laughs> in private.
0: Yeah, so I think that there's a difference between actually embracing an identity. So let's say being, you know, I have a daughter too. So being a father to her versus the identity, I have a work as a professor or, or running a research lab or as an author, I'm, you know, go and give a talk somewhere about my book versus like being two faced <laughs> where you actively are deceiving people. So you have a public facing identity and then privately you're doing something very different. To me, that's more problematic uh, than actually genuinely and authentically being, understanding these identities. You're not really hiding anything from anybody. It's just that you are, you know, it's like dressing up for work. You dress differently for work than when you're at home. Uh, Although in the pandemic, that's kind of like scrambled that whole thing, right? It's the first time we've been able to wear like pajamas to work or no pants on a work call. But for the most part, we have these different like suits or skins that we slip into. But they come with more than just the clothes. It comes with a way of talking, a way of thinking, a way of acting. And what our book argues is even a way of seeing the world. And so the example we use for that is this famous study at Princeton where Princeton was playing Dartmouth uh, football team. Princeton at the time was the best in the country. They had the Heisman winning quarterback and uh, Dartmouth came in. They weren't being that successful and the game got rough and the Dartmouth team ended up injuring this all-American quarterback that Princeton had. Princeton retaliated and the game got out of hand. And then the next day, the Princeton newspaper wrote up a very different description of the game than the Dartmouth newspaper. And these two professors at this different university saw this and said, What the heck's going on here? How can people see this exact same game and come to such different conclusions? And they even brought in students and showed them like clips of the game. This was like in the 50s, so it was like reels of of tape, I guess. And even when they were watching the game right in front of them, they still came to different conclusions about which team had more fouls. And the reason for this is when you have your identity on, in this case with Dartmouth or Princeton, it changes how you're filtering the information. So even looking at a video, you're paying attention to different things than some people with a different identity would. And this is one reason why every, all fans hate the umps or the refs, right? And it's because the refs don't have an identity on and we're all biased because we're fans of these teams. And so we're filtering it and seeing things in a different way than the refs. Uh, admittedly, the refs are wrong sometimes, but for the most part, it's because the fans are biased.
1: And, and what, what you're describing, this this seems like this could be the root of a lot of like societal discord, if, if you will. Is is this what you consider almost like that bias blind spot?
0: Yeah. So people have all kinds of biases, and so we're talking about football biases, but they can be racial biases, gender biases, political biases, religious or or uh, national biases, and then it filters what you see, and 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 then it also filters how you behave. The problem is that when that identity is active in you, you might not be aware of how it's influencing you. And so in the context of, I'll go to racial bias, when we talk a lot about in this country right now, is there are studies and they find that people engage in biased behavior. So for example, in interracial interactions, white people would be more likely to close their arms or lean back or not make eye contact than they would in same race interactions. They're not even often aware of this, but the person on the other side of the interaction can feel that there's just like a coldness in this this exchange. And if you were to take a videotape of that interaction and show it to a third party who had to make judgments about what is actually happening, they'd say something's going wrong here. This person's being very distant or cold um, or disengaged. And so in studies on this, they ask people, how biased are you? And in one study, I I forget the number of people, I think it was over 600 people. And only one person said they're more biased than average. (laughs) Um, Almost everybody says they're less biased than average because they don't see it in themselves but they can see the biases in everybody else around them. It's really easy to see when someone else is being biased. And so it gives you a misperception of your own degree of bias. And so this is often referred to as, and I love this term, the bias blind spot, because we can see biases in others pretty easily, but we have a hard time seeing it in ourselves.
1: It was fascinating because you talk about, I think there was like two examples, you know, as it relates to the, uh, to the police, and one of which was around like body cameras. And the idea, I think, around body cameras was that if they had this footage that people would you know, citizens could hold police officers more accountable. But in the end, what they found was this only made the the people who already supported officers trust them more.
0: Yeah. So that was a there was also a study on that here at NYU um, by a couple of my colleagues. Yael Grinot was the Ph.D. student. And one of her collaborators is now the chair of psych and law at Yale Law School. And so they were trying to understand what happens when you show people these videos of like a, a cop and a suspect kind of grappling in, in, in an arrest. And it's ambi- these videos were intentionally ambiguous to make it hard to tell who was at fault. Um, and what they found is the degree to which you identified with the police and where you looked on the video, because they had an eye tracker machine hooked up to the computer that people were not aware of, and they found that like, if you identified with the police and you were looking at, for example, the suspect's behavior, you were more likely to think the suspect was at fault than if you didn't identify at the police or you were looking at the, the police officer. And so what this suggests is that our identities and the way we're filtering the world visually make it hard for us to have this notion of objective evidence. And, and objective evidence can help when it's really unambiguous. But when it's ambiguous, that's when identities and the, the way we filter the world matter a great deal. It's kind of like looking at, in psychology, we have the whole term like Rorschach or inkblot tests. And uh, in the old days, like Freudian psychologists would bring you in, they show you this inkblot and they ask you what you see. The whole point is there's nothing actually there. They're just looking to see what you project onto the inkblot and trying to, you know, read your mind. Well, that's gone out of, out of style. Those don't turn out to be very good. But It's a really good metaphor for thinking about how people are experiencing much of the world. When things are ambiguous, then their identities kind of get used as a way to filter what they're actually uh, seeing.
1: Whether we're leading our organizations or supporting our favorite sports teams, the identities we take on shape our perceptions of our experiences. Unfortunately, this can often lead to what's called the bias blind spot, leading to a culture of divisiveness and polarization. I asked Jay how to overcome these biases and make progress as a society.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's always better if you do have the more evidence you have, the more you can kind of triangulate on different perspectives. Um, One thing is also taking identity out of the equation. So one of the studies that we cite was when uh, Republicans and Democrats were talking about some data from NASA. So NASA, super highly trusted by pretty much everybody across the political spectrum. You know, some of the smartest people in the world work for NASA. And they were showing climate pattern data to these participants. And if people could tell the political party affiliation of somebody else, and they were trying to interpret the figure together, didn't help. They came up with some pretty dumb conclusions because they were just like distrusting the other person and arguing over it. Um, but if you got rid of their political affiliation and just show them the data, they actually converged on what the data was actually showing and became very accurate. And so sometimes it's useful to think about just removing identity from the equation. Um, the other thing to think about, and this is really probably more effective for most people, is change the norms around the identity. So When we think of identities the most important thing is if you belong to a group you look to members of that group to figure out how to behave um you don't look to members of other groups in fact sometimes if you really don't like the other group you might try to do the opposite of them and so it's really key what members of your group are doing and and that's how we determine kind of how to behave in most situations again especially when it's ambiguous you look to fellow group members to figure it out and so leaders and 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 even people who don't have a lot of power can do subtle things to change norms in an environment, to make it more successful, to make it more accurate, to value inclusion, to value dissent, and to get to better decisions.
1: And, and speaking of groups, I want to talk about just how we identify with certain groups. Let's say like sports teams. I'm curious, what gets um, grown men to paint their faces on the weekend and bark at each other like dogs? <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, this is the great thing about sports, right, is it makes you willing to do things that are, would be otherwise humiliating in other, any other part of your life. at the other funny thing about grown men if you do a survey of grown men and ask them when was the last time you cried most of them will say it was when they watched their favorite team lose you know like cuz for men in public like crying is not a normal thing you're supposed to be very stoic and and keep it together you know even maybe at a funeral you're supposed to be the rock and everybody like seeks comfort from you but grown men are totally cool falling publicly at a sporting event or from their living room if if their team misses a field goal And so that's one of the things is that we, you know, we think of uh, Americans often think of themselves as very individualistic, but we have these really powerful collective identities in all parts of our life that don't, you know, I did my uh, postdoc for three years at Ohio State University. They get 110,000 in for a college football game every weekend. Everybody's in, in scarlet and gray. And it's just like, that's the local religion in Columbus, Ohio is, is this. And it's, the most collectivistic ritual that you could possibly imagine. You know, if you're an alien coming down and you saw it, you would not think that this is an individualistic nation at all. You'd think, wow, this is like <laughs> pretty, like they, these people look like uh, ants or, or bees in a beehive
1: talking about the concept of, of sharing reality. I remember watching this the, probably a few years ago, I watched this documentary on flat earthers. And, and throughout this documentary, because you think, okay, wow, in present day, um, that how could somebody believe that the earth was flat? And these people were presenting themselves almost like scientists and engineers doing these tests to determine the curvature of the earth. And every time they got some evidence back that the earth was curved, they said, well, we need to do more tests. And, and really the crux of this whole thing is, is that what it really was, is just this community of belonging that these these people would meet and gather at conferences, at events and so on, that they did not want to accept that perhaps the Earth was not flat because then that would you know, disband that sense of, of shared reality. Is, is that really what's taking place there?
0: Yeah. So we have a whole chapter on that talks a lot about cult psychology. and I've been studying conspiracy theories in my lab for the last few years, and you nailed it. I watched that same documentary. It's called Behind the Curve on Netflix, if anybody's listening. And it shows that a lot of when we think of conspiracy theorists, we think of, you know, Do do a search on conspiracy theorists in a Google search, and it will turn up a bunch of people in tinfoil hats, right? That's kind of our image in our mind of a conspiracy theorist. They just believe every conspiracy. These are kind of kooky people. We did an analysis of it and wrote a paper arguing that uh, another big attractor to conspiracy theorists is identity. If you identify with a group and they adopt conspiracy-type theories, you go down that rabbit hole with them. Um, And then once you're going down the rabbit hole, it's kind of like it's very threatening to have it unravel. And so the example of this, one of my favorite studies, was done by very famous psychologist, Leon Fessinger. He saw in the newspaper that there was a cult that was predicting the end of the earth, a giant flood, and the aliens were gonna come rescue the true believers. And so he didn't believe that the world was gonna end, so he thought this would be a great opportunity for me to join the cult and then see what happens you know, at midnight when the prophecy is proven wrong, because this is like a perfect real-world experiment to study cult psychology. And so him and some uh, of his students and collaborators joined the cult, lived in it and infiltrated it. And they were in the room when the aliens were supposed to come at midnight. Clock strikes midnight. So this is like, uh, you know, that moment where you have to decide essentially the prophecy is gonna be proven false. And you have to decide, am I gonna keep with this group of people that I feel this enormous connection and belonging with? Or am I gonna realize this cult is just flat wrong and I've been duped and it's time for me to like pack up my suitcase wish them farewell and go back to my old life and and reconnect to my old friends and family. And what happened was, well, the clock struck midnight, no alien ship came to rescue them. And then all of a sudden, they're all feeling a lot of dissonance, discomfort about which pathway they're gonna take. And someone points out, well, the clock in the other room is running a few minutes behind, that must be the correct time. So they were able to reduce their dissonance by running to the other room and looking at the other clock. Well, that clock in a few minutes struck midnight and still no aliens. And eventually they're just all in this room Every minute's ticking by. Eventually someone starts crying. It's just silent. It's just an awkward silence in the middle of the night as their belief is shattered. Well, around 3 a.m., the cult leader kind of leaves the room and comes back. And she says, I've got a message from the aliens. Our faith has been so strong that it has saved the world. And so at that moment, you know, if people have a bullshit detector, they should be thinking, okay, well, this is just another yarn to keep us in. Well, what happened? Everybody stuck with the cult. And not only that, they doubled down. So the next day they started proselytizing, started spreading the word, which they weren't even really doing before. And so this was the way that they reduced their dissonance and kept their belonging. And there was a bunch of factors that they found predicted who stuck with the cult the longest. And two of the biggest ones were just how committed of a believer were you, which you might expect. But the other one that was key was social support. So it's really hard to cling to a false belief especially one like a prophecy that just fails um, or a conspiracy that's proven wrong if you're on your own. But when your community is bolstering and reinforcing that belief, like it did in the cult or like it did in the flat earthers, it's really hard to leave because you don't wanna leave that community and they allow you to maintain that shared reality um, no matter how false it is. And and so that's something to to think about. We also talk in our chapter about like companies that have had kind of cult-like styles. You know, Enron was the classic there was a whole paper written about it, about how it mirrored uh, all these features of cults. Uh, Bethlehem Steel was one we also talked about because my friend Dominic was there when their building was blown blown apart because they failed. They were one, once one of the biggest companies in the country, also a little bit culty. So it's really important to be able to understand when you see these red flags and understand why people are clinging to false beliefs and how hard it might be to bring them back out of it into reality if their identity and their sense of belonging and status is connected to it.
1: And and to even take this point a bit further, you, you argue that it really doesn't have much to do with intelligence. Because I'm sure someone's listening thinking, I would never fall for that. Or you have like these extremely intelligent, like PhD-level people that that oftentimes are making, let's say, not very good decisions. I guess you could argue like almost like social stupidity. So there's not necessarily a correlation between intelligence and then them being a part of these types of groups.
0: Yeah, yeah. So even smart people can get sucked into these types of things. It's not a cure-all. So... You know the audience for this is probably a bunch of really smart people um one of the things that this was captured in was another documentary called the vow it was about the Nixium cult which is based in new york out of albany and it attracted a lot of really smart highly successful people including like hollywood actors and actresses and then at the end some of them leave and they eventually were convicted actually a few blocks from me in uh, new york they tried them and convicted a bunch of cult leaders but There's this great scene in in the movie, the documentary, where these people are like in a cafe and they just start chatting with other people and explaining that they're trying to like bring down this cult, they're trying to bring a lawsuit against it. And these people, just strangers in the cafe are like, how did you ever join a cult? And they just kind of like, they're like, these people are very smart and successful in their life. And they're just trying to explain why they joined the cult and they can't really explain it. All they knew is that if you watch the whole thing is that when they joined it, they felt this, this sense of connection and support and belonging. And they slowly, slowly, slowly were read down, led down these set of beliefs and behaviors that seem really insane once you're out of it. But when you're in it, it kind of reminds me of that old metaphor of like, if you drop a frog in boiling water, it will jump out. But if you put it a cool thing of water and put it on the stove and slowly warm it up, the frog will boil itself. There's a little bit of that, like psychologically, you rationalize each thing because you want to keep part of this group that you value. And then you lose track of how far you've gone down the rabbit hole. And I think that's what happens to smart people.
1: And, and what about the concept of like naive realism? It, it, it meaning that like, let's say people often assume, as you described, that they see reality objectively for what it is. And then when something comes in that's in conflict with, let's say, the reality that they see, they, they start to dismiss that.
0: Yeah. So this is one of my favorite concepts in psychology. It's called naive realism. And it essentially just means that we all think we see reality for what it is. But we're naive in thinking that because other people can see, you know, features of reality we're missing or see our blind spots or biases. But, of course, how could you see it any other way, right? Because if you knew reality was different from what you were seeing, you just update your beliefs. And so people um, can get stuck in this way of of thinking about the world that is – it creates actually a lot of conflict across identity groups. So this has been used to help people try to – understand and unravel like intractable group conflicts. Um, You see this a lot in American politics. It was used actually in trying to address like conflicts in the Middle East and Northern Ireland. Um, So it's often a a thing that happens when two groups disagree so much that they start to tune into different news sources. They start to like share and follow different people on social media. They start to change their friend groups or move to neighborhoods of people like them. And as you do that, you slowly get more and more in this bubble. Academics, you know, are accused of this all the time that we're in our ivory tower, you know, and we're removed from the concerns of of real people. And and I think a lot of academics are. And and so those are the types of things that wall you off from other people and then you get in a disagreement with them. And it's hard to tell if you're seeing it the right way or you've just been so so, in such a bubble that you're not experiencing the same things as them and, and failing to understand it. So that's something always to be aware of. If you disagree with somebody, I always like to do a naive realism check with myself first to make sure that like, I'm not the one that's wrong. Just kind of like fact check myself first before I I go down the, you know to the trouble of trying to like correct somebody else. Because a lot of times it's just that you're not seeing it the right way or you've missed something.
1: So on that note of like a naive realism check, because I'd I'd love to ask you, like, what are some ways that people can really check themselves? Because inherently, it seems like the issue is that because somebody does see reality the way they see it objectively, um, they almost want to like dismiss other information that could be factual. And then whatever, as you mentioned, whatever identity is at stake, you know, factual information becomes even more diluted. So it's like, how how do you know what is true?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple things. Um, One is be aware that, for example, if you're going to like buy into something, or let's say share it on social media, that's something we also study in my lab, um, that we're more likely to share things that align with our identity and our values. And so certain people are sharing something that's, it's, the reason they share is in part because it pushes their buttons or it signals their identity to other people really effectively, or they're doing it to fit in with whatever they think the norms of what other people believe are. And so it's easy for us to share that. It's where we tend to be naturally more skeptical of things that don't align with our identity and our values. And so it takes more effort to apply that skepticism to things that do align with our identity and values and kind of double check them. So that's something you should always be. It's kind of like a confirmation bias check on yourself. If it like lines up a little too closely with what you already believe, um, be extra skeptical of it, at least at first pass. So that would be one thing I I think to do. Um, The other thing, and this is something we're studying now uh, in in my lab with, with collaborators, is this notion of intellectual humility people differ on this. Some people are very low on intellectual humility. They think they're always right. And they're highly just skeptical of everybody else. And they just trust facts from other people. And then there's people who are like, intrinsically skeptical of their own perspective and open-minded to learning more. And it turns out that that's a really useful reality check device. So we have this study now with, you know, in 68 countries with this, 70,000 people around the world. And we found that's one of the, one of the best predictors we found for people who didn't buy into conspiracy theories about COVID was people who scored high in intellectual humility. They were good at kind of weeding out the accurate information that the scientists were giving from the inaccurate conspiracy theories that were spreading. And I think it's because they're constantly, whenever they get information, they're being skeptical of what they believe and going to higher quality sources. So I would also say the last thing I would suggest is we have a chapter on dissent. And what you wanna do is bake dissent into your norms of whatever group you run. Um, so I, I once gave this talk with uh, the CFO of eBay Maynard Webb. And he told me in the early days of eBay, what they would do is at their C-suite meetings, everybody had to take a turn wearing a black helmet. And that meant that they were the devil's advocate for the meeting. And no matter how much they agreed with the ideas, they had to poke holes in them. And the research shows that as long as one person dissents, even if they're wrong, it frees up the discussion for other people to think about new things or or poke holes in bad ideas. And it uh, tends to lead groups to better decisions. So you can like, Bake this into your practices and procedures and norms of whatever group you're part of uh, to help make sure that your blind spots get caught.
1: And, and it's fascinating. I know you mentioned, like, online and, and social media. Now, once, I, I believe, people used to kind of separate the two and, and saying, like, what happens online versus in real life? These are two different things. But now it seems like these lines have been blurred to where, the, you know, online activity is actually driving real world behavior. Um, so this stuff is is now starting to leak in. And, and I remember the first time I saw something like this, this is probably years ago um, when I saw, like, my first friend that I discovered was a conspiracy theorist, Right, someone I knew for many, many years, like, we grew up together. And then you start seeing them posting online and sharing these articles. I started to ask myself, I spoke to my wife, I'm like, do they really think that? Do they really believe that? Uh, And now this has almost become the norm, it seems.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that that the online world has done. It's allowed people to go down these rabbit holes, um, but it's also allowed you to kind of see what people believe in a way that you've never been able to see before. You know, your, your coworkers, your friends, and it can be scary, right? Because if they're going down on some, you know, dangerous tangent, and we live in a dangerous time, I'll go back to the flat earthers. Who cares what the flat earthers believe? Like, it's embarrassing maybe if you have a friend who's a flat earther, but it's like completely harmless. But we're now in a stage the last two years where we've been in a pandemic and I, I wouldn't want that person like <laughs> hanging out with me or my kids um, if they were like doing things that were incredibly dangerous.
1: But let, let me ask you this on this note, when you mentioned flat earthers, let's say you have to, um, you have to go in for a serious surgery and you find out that your surgeon is a flat earther. Oh! Does that change your perspective towards whether you want this person to operate on you?
0: Oh, goodness, that's an interesting one because we just talked about how even smart people can get sucked in. Um, it would change for me, yeah. I mean, I live in the reality community, so I'll just I'll just say how my world is, probably not that different from yours, which is if I start sharing a lot of misinformation on my social media feed, um, and I'll say this, I, I think at least two, I share a lot of social media stuff, but at least twice I remember sharing misinformation. It was like, uh, one in one case, it was like a satirical article that was not actually true and I thought it sounded true so I shared it as if it was true. And in both cases, within minutes, I have friends who are colleagues and they immediately fact-checked me and I immediately apologized and deleted it <laughs> and, and was horrified and, the, and if I didn't do that, if I just kept that up and kept sharing other stuff like that despite being fact-checked, I would stop getting invited to talks in academic conferences. Students would stop applying to work with me. My reputation would kind of like crater pretty quickly. It's the same with my book that I just wrote is if colleagues will go through it, a bunch of my colleagues have read it, and if they found a bunch of errors, it would be part of a blog or trending thread on social media pretty quickly. Um, So when I say something publicly, I I have a reputation at stake and I take it seriously. And so I would think that like, if if I went to a doctor, a medical doctor, I would not want to be going under anesthetic and them uh, carving me open if they were a flat earther. It would just signal to me that they had bad discernment, bad judgment for listening to false information sources.
1: An example like that, I agree. I think that can certainly start to um, label somebody a certain way, but now it's, it's almost like with the rise of what seems like cancel culture. Maybe this has been around much longer, maybe it's being more popularized now, but there's certain aspects where, where I feel like that um, saying anything that might run counter to what like, accepted belief is can, can really, really hurt somebody. So for example, let's say someone goes online and they say they they just don't believe in vaccinating young children, like their young children, for example, but they're fully vaccinated. And yet then people can come out and actually then start to criticize this person and say are they a bad mother or father and all these different things which may have absolutely nothing to do with of any you know their career or how they lead their life and so on um where can you draw the line
0: yeah so i mean that's a good example i mean i'm at nyu where we have a vaccine mandate but we have some rare exceptions but you know the kids vaccine hasn't been rolled out and i have kids and they're not vaccinated yet and I, i will get them vaccinated but i would also be sympathetic to somebody who isn't going to immediately do it <laughs> um, because the vaccine's new and, and, and it hasn't even been approved. And so I would like talk to them and try to understand where they're coming from before I drew a strong conclusion. But I, I do agree that there is like uh, consequences for saying this stuff publicly in ways for all kinds of things you can say now. So you use cancel culture. Um, in my view, what cancel culture is, has actually been around a long time and is actually there's research on this. It's actually pretty non-ideological. What the research shows is it's really driven by ideological extremism and group identity. Um, People don't want to hear opinions and want to suppress opinions that disagree with them. But it's especially true of people who have really strong positions on certain issues. Obviously, there's like broader issues where like, let's say Harvey Weinstein assaulted somebody. He should be tried in court as he has been. I, I don't consider that to be cancel culture. I'm talking about like people's opinions of political issues. And so there is a censoriousness that tends to be attached to people who have very strong belief systems. And so it is a dangerous thing with social media for people because um, there's lots of consequences. I, I mean, I'm, I'm less worried about politicians getting pushed back. I'm much more worried about like private citizens saying something that's inarticulate or they state it wrong. Like, I can't tell you how many times I sent off like a tweet from my phone and there was an autocorrect it was horrifying and horrifying, embarrassing, but it could have been worse. You know, like, auto can work in bad ways. and Or you just don't fully know the issue and you share something in public in a way that can be screen captured and used against you in a way. So I, I'm like, I don't know, I'm pretty ambivalent about that being used because I, I prefer to, again, start with the intellectual humility, try to understand where they're coming from and assume maybe the best of people, and then understand if they really have like a very, perverse set of views, um, then make a decision at that point. But I do feel like this is part of the thing about social media, it's easy to spread criticism very quickly and the incentive structure is to spread criticism of people. And and so, you know, there can be collateral damage in those types of contexts. Again, I I separate that from like holding public figures and uh, political officials accountable. I think that's in a very different category.
1: And, and I'm curious because I know you mentioned like cancel culture. A lot of it, it does really tie into uh, identity. I'm curious what what is it where let's say people go back and they're saying ten years ago you posted this tweet and this is something like maybe the person has is, is, is evolved. They're considerably different today. But this is putting I think many leaders and maybe even private citizens in positions where do they start auditing their entire life history and social history, saying if if they did anything wrong and uh, and they just uh, Henry Cloud was on the podcast at one point. He mentioned he's like, look, you want to stir up this public discourse, just Go outside and light a match. So, um, like, what what aspects of this tie into identity? Is it is it the ones canceling? Does it create some sense of like power or, or unity for them? Like, what what is this?
0: Part of it, first of all, is that norms change. Not just norms within the group you belong to, but norms in society. Um, and so, things that might have been fairly normative uh, ten years ago might be seen as reprehensible in certain communities now. And the same thing will likely happen. So. For example, like I think the, the, what will happen in the future is all the people who are like holding up smartphones, which is all of us, I have one, you know, we're gonna learn something about the way the minerals were extracted or something or the harm to the earth. And in 20 years, people might look back at those of us who use it as like moral monsters or something. like I don't know, but it could be something like that or taking a plane ride or something like if global warming gets way, way worse. So norms can change very quickly for those things. Part of this is if, if you run an organization, a lot of the burden now falls on leaders, as you said. So how do you deal with it if someone in, one of your employees said something 10 years ago that's now seen as offensive? People change and evolve. And so I think what you would wanna do is see how do they feel about it now? And also um, what are their actual actions? So a lot of social media is very performative. There's parts of it that are connected to your real behavior, but parts that are not. You might've said it because it was provocative even if you didn't believe it or said it in a sarcastic way before and might never believe it now or might never have even acted on it. So I think you have to take a greater consideration of people's current beliefs and actions if there's going to be some consequence for them. Um, If they said something reprehensible or offensive 10 years ago and they still continue to believe it, then you can decide how you're going to judge it. If they've acted on it and it's reprehensible, then you even have a more uh, serious pattern of action. But we have to understand that norms shift and change and evolve. And that's part of how groups work. The other side of it is uh, of people who are kind of like pulling up something someone said 10 years ago. The reason they do that, I think, is that there's lots of incentives for doing that. And so especially if you do it to a prominent person and you share it, you get likes and retweets, you get more followers. If you have a blog or a podcast, you can build build, build a better platform. And so the incentive structure for social media is one that most of the personal incentives and monetary incentives are aligned with, you know, dunking on people. And so, especially around these types of hot button issues. So it's not going to stop. Um, that's incentive structure for individuals. And so fundamentally, it's going to come down to institutions and organizations to try to have an ethical framework for dealing with this internally. Any organization, you know, I'm in universities, this happens all the time at universities, that any institution that's not ready to handle this type of thing is going to be caught flat-footed when it does happen. So I think it's like better to figure it out in the abstract based on a good set of principles um, rather than responding to these things ad hoc, because there's lots of incentive structures for people to pull these things up. And there's lots of cases where it might not be as bad as it looks. Um, So you have to investigate it. And I guess I also want to separate that from cases where it's a red flag and then you investigate the person they have been doing something really bad. um, And and then that should be addressed in an appropriate uh, way, of course.
1: Throughout history, we admire what we call moral rebels. Those who lived up to their values in the face of significant obstacles and stood against popular yet harmful beliefs. However, in today's environment filled by information overload, how can we know if we're standing on the right side of history?
0: Yeah, so, so the example of a moral rebel we talk about is Martin Luther King. So I think Martin Luther King has about a 95% national approval rating now, You know, long past his, his death, his assassination. But even years after his, I have a dream speech, his approval rating was in the low 30%. And so we look back on him and think he was morally righteous. And there's like almost universal consensus of that. Um, but at the time people didn't treat him that way. Certainly not enough people. And so, and he paid with his life for it and faced enormous distress and he was imprisoned and so forth. Um, so it's hard to tell without time and perspective. What, what I see where I have a problem with conspiracy theories is when they've been flatly falsified and people are clinging to them, kind of like the cult followers. Um, Some conspiracies turn out to be true. So I don't intrinsically have a problem with people being skeptical of leadership or institutions or uh, asking questions. I have a problem with people who are, you know, full of BS, um, people who no matter what, how much they've been fact-checked or how unlikely it is to be true, they keep clinging to it. Um, And and it turns out, I think that's most of conspiracy theories, but certainly some conspiracies turned out to be true. So I I like to think of it from an evidence-based perspective is that is there overwhelming evidence they're wrong? Well, then that's not a very good look for them. But is it up in the air and we don't know and they're just being like wisely skeptical about it? That's like good. And in fact, again, I'll go back to like the work on dissent we have. It's like you need dissenters. And in fact, the research on dissent, my co-author, Dominic Packer, was the pioneer of all this. Uh, Most people think when someone's dissenting that they actually don't care about the group. But what he's found is most of the time it's the people who care about the group the most that are the people who are willing to suck it up and dissent because dissenters are treated very badly throughout history. They're treated very badly in groups. Even the names we have for them, like devil's advocate, is a pretty nasty name for somebody (laughs) in your group, right? A heretic is worse. And look through history at how heretics have been treated. And so you need to create a culture where people are comfortable voicing concerns or you're going to get these things where they, when they actually think something's going wrong, they won't ask the right question, and you'll make a bad decision. There's lots of examples of groupthink throughout history um, going very badly for, for leaders and organizations. But you need to have it in a healthy way. So if they dissent, what evidence do they have? You know, Back it up with, an, with a reasoned argument or some evidence, rather than just like spewing cynicism or negativity or conspiracy
1: theories. And just for the people listening, we're, we're barely scratching the surface of, of this phenomenal book, so I, I certainly encourage everyone listening to read it if this is a topic you're interested in. Jay, I'm curious, if, if someone's listening to this and they can only take away one thing from this conversation, what, what do you think it should be?
0: Yeah, I think the big thing is we our intuitions about how people are motivated and how groups operate are often wrong. And I'll just throw out one concrete example here that I already talked about how Americans are are individualistic. We're more individual individualistic than almost any other country. Um, well, what the research shows is that the more you identify as an American, the more individualistic you become. Or if you're an immigrant, you move to America, the more individualistic you become. And what that means is that individualism is a form of identity and conformity to norms of that identity. It's, it's not the opposite. <laughs> People think individualism is pushing against conformity and pushing against group identity. In fact, the research suggests it's the opposite. Um, another counterintuitive example I'll give is that people think when you join groups, you automatically uh, discriminate against others. You know, they think the term is thrown around a lot as tribalism. It's kind of automatically this very primitive way of treating people who are different. Well, that's not always true. It depends on the norms of your group. So people who identify with groups that are very inclusive, the more they identify, the more inclusive they become. So an example of that is like Doctors Without Borders. The more committed you become and immersed in the organization of Doctors Without Borders, the more radical you become in your willingness to make enormous sacrifices to yourself to help people who are very, very different than you in very faraway countries, or Red Cross is another one. And so when you understand how identity works, but also norms and leadership, it allows you to understand these things and and guide them in a a healthier way. And um, if not, you you draw a lot of false conclusions about how these things work, unfortunately.
1: And it's like the, the, the prevailing theme, it seems to be like, don't believe everything you think. Uh, and it, it just kind of that evolution of of becoming more and more uh, self aware and and uh, and leading with humility. So so Jay, as, as we come to a close, this being the game changing attorney podcast, uh, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, being a game changer to me means uh, knowing the best science on something, the best knowledge, best data, best evidence you can have, and then using it uh, for good. And so. We can know everything in the world but we don't act on it and build communities and cultures and practices that abide by it we're not going to be very game-changing and so that's the one of the reasons we wrote a book we want we don't expect anybody to know about this we wrote it so that non-scientists will be able to read it and understand it just like if you open the newspaper you can read and learn something uh we want this to be kind of that deep dive uh the, i like to refer to it or one of the reviews of the book was that it's like a red pill like the matrix once you once you read it and understand the world this way you can't unsee it but I think a lot of people don't quite understand it or see it the right way yet.
1: i want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Jay Van Bavel for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Jay said that dissent is not a bad word. And oftentimes the people who speak out are the ones that drive the most progress. As leaders, we should foster a culture where debate is not only tolerated, but encouraged so we can make more effective decisions. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Jay Van Babel, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com.